I'm Emma. I'm Shannon. And welcome to this podcast, It Doesn't Exist. I thought you were going to have me say part of it, but then you kept going. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> I should have thrown it. I should have thrown it to you. I don't know. <laughs> We've yes never and. done that yes before. And. We do it with the ending, but we don't do it. I guess I've never noticed that. Because do... our intro is not standard other than like, hi, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so. And then it's and then just... it's just derails it's at most just, moments. Well, because half the time I go, and this is... This podcast doesn't exist. <laughs> like, it doesn't work well. So I'm like, welcome to. Welcome. 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 Talk about things you like to do. That's a mashup. <laughs> Name those two shows. And also, cross off random singing and musical reference on your bingo card. A bingo card? What's a that? A bingo card. Why do you... Right here in River City. <laughs> what? Why do you have a bingo card? Good question. We'll explain it on the Patreon someday. We don't know. I mean... We don't have a Patreon yet, but what do we have, Emma? A website. It's called thispodcastdoesnexist.com. Dot com. And there you can find all of our socials. You can find our Twitter, our Insta, which is where we live most of the time. We are making transcripts so that people can come and read the podcast. So wait for those coming up on YouTube fairly soon. By we, you, she means her. Yeah. I'm not doing anything I am. That. I am the technical support. I just show, I'm IT. <laughs> I just show up, try to be funny, and then post some pictures on some places. I'm IT, your admin. That's basically what this is. Admin and marketing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you can also send us a little hurt furt to a website. I can't say it like I that. Can't. You can send us a heart fart. A, a hot me- fart. A, t- a message, a story, an email. A, an email to us. There's a little button on our website or you can just send an email to this podcast doesn't exist at gmail.com. Shout out to Haley and to Shelby who recently submitted stuff yeah. to us. Thank you. I, we would love to hear anything you have to say, basically. Yeah. I mean, questions, comments, concerns, stories. Spoofs, goofs, spooks, murps and derps. Murps and derps. <laughs> I'm Murp, she's derp, and welcome to this podcast doesn't exist. <laughs> Why didn't I, I didn't do it? Why didn't I do it? I don't know. Uh, now I'm mad. It's all right. I'll do it later when you least expect it. Okay, friends. I think today it might be good to just jump straight in. Let's do it. Because I already warned Shannon that I was going to do a spooky episode. Oh, yeah. I did warn you yesterday. I know. I will say this isn't necessarily as, like, storyline spooky. It's just general vibes spooky. I don't know if that makes it better or worse for you, but we'll find out. Okay. Okay. So... (laughs) (laughs) It's you. (laughs) (laughs) The exorcist. So neither Shannon nor I are scary movie people. No. But as our listeners might know, I'm a fan of the spook when I don't have to see it. There is, however, a classic scary movie that was filmed or set nearby that I might convince myself to try. And you actually just said it. I know! I just said it. The Exorcist. Did you see my notes? No. Oh, I'm so, I'm really surprised that you said it. <laughs> no, you just, you burped and it made I, a funny sound. Yep. 
So the Bone Shaman was scared of this movie when it came out, and rightly so, since this movie itself is cursed. Sorry, I'm just sitting here being like, you know, if we ever do become podcast famous, like if we have a Wikipedia page, we're going to need like a subsection on the mother source of like recurring characters (laughs) and be like, the Bone Bone Shaman, Shaman, colon, Emma's dad, Leem, (laughs) oral surgeon, Leem, like, and it's just going to be my husband's name. As, with multiple things. All a- just, aliases. And, 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 and. Just all a list. <laughs> Poor Dusty. Uh, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> which, well, we already talked about it. The, but The Librinary. Oh, yes. Yep. Which I can never say. The Crypt King. Oh, the Crypt King. Are you still, are you still listening? If you are, drop us a line because we miss you and we love you. And um, I'm going to be watching, seeing you this summer. So Are you watching this season of All Stars? Or Drag not, Race? Or not summer. What's happening? Fall. You have a lot of things to listen to with us talking. But anyway. Also, Chief Archaeologist Tom, Tom King. King who <laughs> doesn't is, know he's a part of this podcast. He's a friend of the podcast. He just doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. I don't no. think Zach Bagans makes the list because he's already a popular yeah, feature. Yeah, he's a known entity. If you can think of any other recurring characters on our show, the Pennington Monster. Oh, yes, correct. The Pennington Monster. Uh, please let us know. Email us. DM us. Yep. Etc. Okay. This movie was actually based on a true story. So today, Shannon, you get two. You get The Exorcism of Roland Doe and The Curse of the Exorcist. Hoo-hoo. <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> I was so unenthused. A value. You your eyes at the same time. A value duet. Yes. Lucky me. So let's start at the beginning. A very good a place, place to start. start. In Cottage City, Maryland, in the 1940s... Is it just all tiny homes with thatched roofs? No, but it's like 10 minutes away from here. Cottage City. To triangulate myself, you're welcome. Lived a small German Lutheran family. Roland, a young boy, was the only child in his family and relied on the adults for playtime. His Aunt Harriet was an always willing playmate. I have an Aunt Harriet. I love that name. She's a musician. Oh. You should look her up. Okay. Sweet Harriet, everybody, on Facebook and maybe other places. I don't know. I love that. Well, this one was a spiritualist, um, Mm -hmm. and she had hobbies that most young kids would not be exposed to. However, when Roland heard his Aunt Harriet talk of her interest, he expressed a desire to use a Ouija board, so she Uh, taught him how. It does say ages eight and up. Right. Yeah. the, The eight feels arbitrary. I don't know. In my mind. Anyway. Roland's Aunt Harriet died when he was a preteen. After her death, the family experienced all sorts of strange noises, furniture and objects moving around on their own or even levitating, but only when Roland was nearby. Was it the mongoose? Yes. Roland himself began experiencing activity when he was 14 and could hear knocking and scratching sounds from behind his bedroom walls. Mm -mm. So you were right. It's 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 the mongoose. No, actually, y'all, it's mice. We, oh yeah, we figured it out. We, we called. Um, we we called had someone control. come look in my <laughs> attic, and uh, it's mice in my walls. Not, not a mongoose. Not a mongoose. 
The hardwood floors in their house were scratched up from the sliding furniture, and the portrait of Christ the family had hanging on their wall would shake any time Roland stood near it. Visual bit, Shannon is shaking with her arms outstretched like Jesus. <laughs> also, for the record, it is 9.20 at night. Yeah, this is the latest that we've recorded mm. th- this year. Yeah, I was going to be like, back in the stewed days yeah. when we would do four episodes in a day. <laughs> yeah, no, this is the this is the latest that we've recorded oh, in this year. Oh, goodness gracious. Glad I chose a spook. Oh, yeah, great. I get to drive home in the rainy dark. Welcome. The family, spooked, asked their Lutheran pastor, Luther Miles Schultz. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad he's a Lutheran pastor and his name is Luther. It kind been of awkward fits. awkward if he was a Baptist. Right. To help them with whatever was acting on their family. Schultz had been interested in parapsychology for a while and took this as an opportunity to observe the supernatural with his own eyes. He arranged for Roland to stay the night in his home so that he could observe him, and this is really creepy to me. Yeah, mm, mm. no. But let's reiterate, this is like 1948, 49. No, still, mm. It's not that it's not creepy, but parents were much more trusting. That's fair. Of other adults. Parapsychologist J.B. Rhine learned from Schultz that while the boy was in his home, the pastor witnessed objects and furniture moving on their own, just like the Doe family had. Chairs would move with Roland, and one even threw him out of it while he sat down. His bed would shake every time he was in it. Rhine, quote, wondered if Schultz unconsciously exaggerated some of the facts, end quote, which is interesting coming from a parapsychologist. Schultz told the Doe's that they should see a Catholic priest to gain more clarity on what was happening with their son, which I find he hilarious. He's like, I, you gotta go older. We need older a different denomination. Brand. We, I can't. We need a different brand of Jesus. Go that way. <laughs> Have you tried the Target brand? <laughs> Costco. Costco. Br- the Kirkland brand's not working for you. It's not. Oh, that's all right. I mean, maybe try... Let's try Kmart. Let's try Kmart. Oh, gosh. Remember Kmart, everybody? Ugh. The big K? Went down with the Toys R Us's of the world. Oh, RP. Hmm. So, according to the story, the boy was taken to Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C., a Jesuit institution, to have an exorcism. I feel like there were some steps missing here, like a priest or someone determining that the person was actually possessed and not like the house being haunted by a dead aunt who definitely liked the spook. But this is all the story I was able to find. So, because there is like a process that you have to go through in the Catholic Church in order to even have an exorcism. Yeah, I go through the stations. Well, and I, interestingly, because I did read through some of the, like, steps that it takes to have an exorcism done. You have to get a referral. Like, when you go to the specialist. Basically. They're like, ah, yes, the dermatologist, the ophthalmologist, the exorcist. Yep. <laughs> Got them all. Sorry, we don't, don't, sorry, we don't accept your insurance. <laughs> The Catholic Church is like, we're sorry, Medicare, and we don't accept We don't Medicare. accept that. You'll have to pay out of pocket yeah. into this giving we're dish. We're out of network. <laughs> into the giving dish. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, apparently, 
if possible, you have to gain consent from the person the exorcism would be performed on, which is a fairly new thing. Uh, that wasn't a thing at this time. Yeah, I'm like, mm, it is a the thing. The Catholic Church consent? Yeah. It's a thing now, um, and it it has to happen unless there's some, like, extreme circumstance where it's impossible, which I, they didn't go into what those would be, but... Well, I guess if the person is, like, in a coma except when they are, like... Possessed. Possessed, yeah. then it would be hard to, like, get consent. Yeah. Father Edward Hughes, a Roman Catholic priest, was the one to perform the first exorcism. The rite took a turn when Roland allegedly got one of his hands out from the restraints they had tied him to the bed with, snapped a bed spring off of the bed frame under the mattress, and attacked Father Hughes with it, slashing him deeply in the arm. The oh. exorcism then abruptly ended. I hope he has his tetanus shot. Right? Especially 1948. Like, <laughs> The family, desperate to help their son and believing now that he was truly possessed, traveled to St. Louis, Missouri. Oh. At this point, Roland was in his early teens. A cousin of Roland's was a student at St. Louis University and asked one of his professors, a priest, to speak to a colleague named Father William S. Bowdern, who was an associate of College Church. Both men went to Roland's family's home, where they were staying in St. Louis, and allegedly saw a shaking bed, objects flying across the room, and Roland shrinking back from anything sacred while growling his words in a low, guttural voice. Hmm. I'd just stake him in the desert, right? That's very Catholic. Yeah. Just chuck him out there for like 40 days. See what happens. Call it good. Yeah. Sprinkle him with water every, like, you know, week. See what it all sizzles off of him. I mean, like, it worked for Jesus, right? Like, the devil was like, you throw this? yourself down. Your, your, dad, your, your dad would save you. And Jesus was like, nah, bro. Like, I don't need your angels. And that's, that's You're a, the that's devil. The point. I I'm see, glad, I know things. I'm glad that they didn't throw a 14-year-old boy into the desert. Uh, but I mean, yeah, but I'm like, if you believe in demons. Do you mm -hmm. believe in demons and boys? <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I was just possessed by Cher. <laughs> That's the title of the episode. <laughs> it was possessed by Cher. It was possessed by Cher. Chad Michaels. <laughs> oh my god, no, I was possessed by Chad Michaels. That's what happened. <laughs> Neither of whom are dead. <laughs> Sorry. I killed her. She's gone. She's gone. She's dead. <laughs> no, that's just how you sleep. <laughs> oh, I sleep like this. Like Snow White. Um, no, sometimes you sleep like this. Because the, the like couple of times we've been in the same bed, I've truly turned and been like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, dead body. <laughs> I'm sorry. You okay? You okay? Ooh, my you like abs. a stomach cramp? My abs. It's good for you. I'm crying. Great. I'm so glad to make you cry with not scaring you. <laughs> There's still time. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, you're like, ha, huh, a corpse. And I'm like, a starfish. Get off of me. I'm not your husband. Bowdern, believing the boy was possessed and deciding to help, received permission from the archbishop to perform another exorcism on Roland. 
And since I didn't see a permission granted for the other one, I was like, well, obviously this means that this is a thing that happens. And then I went to go look up what, you know, it takes to do an exorcism. Anyway. In 1949, Bowdern performed more than 20 exorcism rituals on Roland in three months. Oh my goodness. During one, Bowdern wrote in his diary on March 10th, 1949, quote, Roland entered a trance-like state as 14 witnesses watched. There was a scratching which beat out a rhythm of marching soldiers. Second-class relic of St. Margaret Mary was thrown on the floor. The safety pin was opened, but no human hand had touched the relic. R, meaning Roland, started up in fright when the relic was thrown down, end quote. During exorcisms, priests will use certain relics or statues in order to invoke the saints for their help you know to try and get some intercession happening and this one must have been some kind of like brooch relic situation something that would have had a safety pin on it which is why he brings that up it's so weird to think about relics in america yeah like it feels such like an old it's world, like an old world like thing. multiple centuries ago and right? our country's just like dee, 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 we're just a little baby <laughs> just a baby I'm just a baby i don't believe in rights for people i'm just a baby during one ritual the priest and others were having a conversation and words started to appear on roland's body bowdern wrote quote on one evening, the word Lewis was written on the boy's ribs in deep red scratches. What in the Dolores Umbridge? Mm. Next, when there, were some, when there was some question of the time of departure, the word Saturday was written plainly on the boy's hip. As to the length of time the mother and the boy should stay in St. Louis, another message was printed on the boy's chest three and a half weeks. The printing always appeared without any motion on the part of the boy's hands. And this is weird to me because now i'm like is he lying naked on this bed this poor 14 year old boy with like 14 people standing in the room this feels traumatic like it's traumatic anyway yeah but like maybe he's just doing like the jesus thing where he just has like the white diaper, <laughs> looking diaper thing. on Aww. you know like the cloth i mean maybe whatever. maybe it's for like you know making sure he doesn't like roll around so much that he ends up choking himself or like cutting off circulation or whatever i don't know bro i've never exercised anybody i barely exercise myself i exercise who thought you said extra fries (laughs) me 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 demon (laughs) (laughs) roland was eventually admitted to the alexian brothers hospital which is now the south city hospital in st louis on march 21st 1949 The next month, the final exorcism was performed on Roland. It was also violent and required two other priests to be present and assist, Father William Van Rue and Father Walter Halloran. Roland was again strapped down to the bed. Halloran said that the words like evil and hell would appear on the teenager's skin with other marks. He, quote, broke into a violent tantrum of screaming, cursing, and voicing Latin phrases, end quote. During the portion called the Litany of Saints, which is basically where they literally just read out every saint, the mattress under Roland started to shake. At some point, Roland was close enough to Father Halloran to break his nose. But the exorcism was completed, and according to Halloran, Roland went on to lead an ordinary life after his ordeal. 
Throughout all of this, however, the media was hungry for answers. Who was the boy? Was he really possessed? Was any of this real? There were newspaper articles and interviews with the priests and attempts to know the boy's real name. Roland Doe was a pseudonym. In an attempt to keep the minor's identity private, the priests would only refer to him as the boy, Roland Doe, or Robbie Mannheim, which only appeared in like a couple instances. Hmm. They also initially misdirected the media to the town of Mount Rainier, Maryland, rather than the real hometown of Cottage City to keep the family's home safe, which I appreciate. Still, rumors gathered and spread across the country as a boy possessed by a demon became sensational. Even years after Father Halloran told the press that the last exorcism worked and the boy went on to lead a normal life, people were fascinated with the idea of a demon possession in the modern era. In 1971, William Peter Blatty published The Exorcist, a horror novel inspired by the case of Roland Doe, even interviewing Father Bowden to know the details of the St. Louis exorcisms. He was also a student at Georgetown University at the time that he was writing this. This book became the basis, both in name and context, for the movie made in 1973. So let's now talk about the movie. If you don't want spoilers, skip ahead like 10 minutes, which is what I wrote. In reality, it'll probably be 20 because knowing us, we'll talk about it. But I, I mean, if you haven't seen The Exorcist at this point, you probably don't want to. So feel free to stick around if you don't mind listening to. Plots. I love listening to podcasts about movies I'm never going to see. <laughs> like, Same. I mean, not to shout out another show on our show. No, but absolutely I'm going to. do that. Let's honor those who are with us. Yeah. <laughs> Like, as if they're dead. So sorry. I didn't realize like that. With Those who are with us. In this time of trial. So there's a podcast called Failure to Adapt. Mm-hmm. And it's hosted by Maggie Takuto Hall, who's a young adult and children's book author. Mm-hmm. Love her. I found her not through her books, but through her first podcast with her husband called Let's Not Panic. Very funny. Very good. Travel slash life slash funny stuff happening and red scott who's a comedian but basically what they do is they pick stories that have been adapted from book to movie they read and watch both and then they talk about them but in a very funny way like they do like petty differences and whatever so like i just listened to an episode today that's about some like tom cruise movie that i i'm never gonna watch it but it was very funny to listen to them talk about it apparently yeah. emily blunt looks very hot in it doing of course she push-ups. What, what doesn't she look hot in yep so yeah and i i listened to a podcast that's called um how did this get made and it's three comedians paul Shear, his wife uh and uh, fellow actress june diane raphael and uh jason manzoukas who's not his wife it's his friend <laughs> and they watch a movie like a really bad rated mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm from any point in time of any genre and then they talk about it for like an hour and a half two hours and it's always amazing and I always have never seen the movie and it's I love it because usually they're the movies that are like you're you you would never choose this right but the whole point of the of the podcast is how on earth did the did anyone green light this Yeah. yeah so and because they're all in the industry they're like really what What why and i can't get this part why like (laughs) so it's very it's very fun 
I will say additional plug. Uh, they have a whole recurring series uh, where they're reading and watching all the Twilight movies oh, no. and books. Oh, my um, God. With Sarah Gailey as a guest host. Who That's is lovely. Author. Yeah. Apparently, Maggie's uncle is Chris Sarandon, Prince Humperdinck. So he's on the Princess Bride episode. So go check them out after you're done oh my God. liking and sharing and subscribing to our podcast. Please and thank you. Thanks. Tell them that we sent you. Yeah. We would, we would love that. I would love that. That would be fun to know that we have, you know, you know, podcast Help love. us infiltrate. Podcast love. All right. So we've never seen The Exorcist. We're never going to, but Emma's going to tell us about it. Yes. So William Blatty wrote the screenplay for his novel and had William Friedkin sign on as director. The screenplay was different from the story we just heard about Roland in some very key ways. The main character was not Roland, but now a young girl named Reagan, and a lot more gruesome images like boils, blood, and death, as well as an appearance of a demonic artifact. Hmm. Even with the popularity of the novel, though, the pair had a very hard time casting the film. Hmm. Most of the larger stars they approached turned down the offers, so instead they decided on Linda Blair to play the possessed young girl Reagan, who was pretty unknown at Hollywood at the time, and Jason Miller to play Father Damien Carras, who was also relatively unknown, but very attractive. Sorry. The rest of the cast were character actors in the industry, pretty much. The basic storyline, slash the entire plot of the movie, <laughs> is as follows. Father Lancaster Marin is at an archaeological dig in northern Iraq when a medallion of St. Joseph is unearthed with another artifact representing Pazuzu, an ancient demon. He returns home with no real issues. That's just the opening scene of the film. Hmm. Actress Chris McNeil is working on a film in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. and living with her daughter Reagan in a townhouse. One evening, Chris hears a noise in the attic, and Reagan tells her about an imaginary friend she has named Captain Howdy. And this is when I think I'd really be able to watch this movie, because I don't think I'd be able to get past how silly that is. Uh, no. I'm sorry. Imaginary friends. No. Mm, no. What will happen if... So, if my eventual children are like, Auntie Shannon, come play with me, and they bring you down here to this basement, and they're like... So, Auntie Shannon, this is my best friend. Whoopsie. And you're like, I'm sorry? And they're like, whoopsie. And then you're like, oh, okay. And you're trying to play along. And then you accidentally sit on whoopsie and kill them. What are you going to do? <laughs> I'm going to say whoopsie daisy. <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to be like, tiny human. We're not doing this. We're not. Please stop. Here's a Squishmallow. If you want to give this a personality, that's fine. Also, the Fae don't want to be your friend, so stop it. Yeah, seriously. Don't mess with the Fae. They will snatch you. Correct. Anyway, moving on. Reagan starts to become violent and weird, peeing on the carpet in the middle of a party her mother is hosting. This girl is, like, ten. Mm. Chris puts her to bed, and the bed starts to shake violently. And then... Reagan becomes violent herself. And during a film director's visit, he's a little eccentric. He, he's, like, heard about this, and he's like, I just want to see her. I just want to see her. Reagan shows abnormal strength, and in the next scene, the director is shown at the bottom of some outdoor steps 
dead with his head backwards. That I've heard about. Yes, and these steps that they were filmed at were right outside of where I used to work at the Georgetown University Press. They were right outside of my window, and I could see them every single day. <laughs> Love that. You want to know why I know that fact about why? the stairs? Why? Because I just remembered back in high school, my dad and I went on a Georgetown University college tour. We didn't sign up. We didn't. I wasn't. <laughs> just like tag well, along. Well, okay. So child of divorce problems. I spent every other weekend yeah. from like 6th through maybe ninth through 10th grade. Probably 10th. Because our like gifted and talented mentor like she wasn't our teacher like we didn't have class it was just like we would check in with her once a semester or whatever being like still gifted i'm smart (laughs) the issues haven't started yet uh that comes later but she was like college choice can feel really stressful for kids that are in like this gifted category they put a lot of pressure on themselves so just literally practice going on college tours when it doesn't matter like when you're a sophomore that's a really that's colleges like don't care about you i mean they care but they're not gonna be like they're not hard selling uh, you they're not actively looking for you to come so like i would come down to springfield where my dad had his divorced dad condo Mm -hmm. but yeah one saturday we just like rolled up to georgetown and there was a big group of people they all had like lanyards and folders and we just kind of like walked with the back of the group and there we were and they tell that fact on the tour yeah they are very proud of it for i mean gotta have a gimmick gotta have something and it's even on on google it's even like a little like (laughs) the exorcist stairs that's exactly is the exorcist steps yeah Yeah. they're like yep right there and you're like yep and then it's georgetown university press (laughs) there you go So Reagan becomes worse and sores start to appear on her body. Gross. Yeah. A homicide detective looking into the director's death says that the only plausible explanation for the death was that he was pushed from Reagan's window. A possessed Reagan then turns her head backwards in the bed and starts to speak in the director's voice, which thoroughly freaks everybody out. Oh, rightfully so. Yeah. A father Carras is called in for help and over two meetings, Reagan claims to be the devil projectile vomits, speaks mm. in tongues, reacts to tap water when Carras says it's holy water, which technically is a point against true possession, and the demon says that it will stay with Reagan until it kills her. Hmm. Chris tells the father that Reagan killed the director. Like, she, she's like, this absolutely happened. The words, help me, appear on Reagan's skin, and Carras concludes that an exorcism should take place. He is given permission under the condition that a more experienced priest be present, and so Father Marin, from our opening scene, is called in. Mm. The priests start to perform the exorcism, and the demon in Reagan starts to curse them, focusing on Father Carras, who in the earlier portions of the film was having a crisis of faith. Mm. It is violent and difficult, and so the priests take a break, Marin staying with Reagan and Carras going out of the room to reassure Chris that Reagan will be okay. When he returns, Marin is dead on the ground. Mm, mm-hmm. Carras starts to beat Reagan and screams for the demon to take him instead. He, she rips the medallion of St. Joseph that he had been given around his neck off, and the demon possesses him instead, free, freeing Reagan. 
Carras throws himself out of the window, down the same outdoor steps that the director died on. Reagan has no memory of her possession, and her mother hugs her as Father Carras is giving his last rites. The movie ends with the cured Reagan holding the St. Joseph medallion. Wow. Yeah. So, it's a scary movie, but I did say that it was cursed. Mm Mm-hmm. So there were multiple instances during and after the filming of this movie that made it scary to the cast and crew, as well as their audience. The first incident was at around 2.30 a.m. on a Sunday in 1972. The CISO 54th Street Studios in New York City housed the replica Georgetown townhouse where filming would take place, including the bedroom of Reagan where the exorcism scenes were going to be filmed. But this morning... The set went up in flames, allegedly due to an electrical short circuit. Everything burned down, except for Reagan's bedroom. Go. This fire set the filming back by six weeks as the home was rebuilt from scratch. But then as soon as it was ready, the new sprinkler system shut down, causing another two-week delay. This also increased their budget by almost double, which is not good. It's not good. (laughs) There were multiple deaths related to the film as well. The actor who played Father Marin, Max von Sydow, had just landed in New York for his first day of filming when he learned that his brother had died extremely unexpectedly. Like, he was Mm. young and there was no reason. The man who played the director, Jack McGowan, died one week after his final scene in the movie was filmed. Jason Miller, who played Father Carras, had an incident where his young son was struck by a motorcycle on an empty beach and almost died. Luckily, he didn't, but, like, an entirely empty beach and someone's driving their motorcycle on it and hits a kid. It's like that story of there being, like, the oldest tree in this one desert and it's, like, empty except for this one tree and a drunk driver manage to hit that tree and kill it bro it's like it's like that like you literally anywhere else you would have been fine ellen burston who played the mother chris almost broke her back during a scene and caused more delays in filming because she was incapable of standing so they had and she both she and uh the girl who played reagan both of them had back injuries that were attributed to the harnesses that they had because at one point reagan's like levitating above the bed Mm -hmm. and so they have these harnesses that are like around her hips and around her legs and whatever and she had complained hi this hurts and the director was like it's fine it's fine it's fine and she ended up like almost fracturing her spine like it would have been an extreme issue and then so for ellen burston she gets slapped by her kid in the movie And has, like, a a forceful push towards the wall. And the way that they had done it, they had, like, put her in this harness situation. And she was like, this isn't comfortable. They did it a couple of times. She was like, this really hurts. And the director was like, just one more. And they really let go. And she smacked her back into the wall. And she did fracture some bones. And that's why she was incapable of standing. It was, it, at that point, it was negligence, but it's still like one of those things where like we just had to get, we got to get it done, we got to get it done, we got to get it done. So, not great. 
A man named Paul Bateson, who played a radiology tech in the film, went on to murder a variety reporter in 1977, and he claims he doesn't know why. He doesn't have a motive. He didn't know him. There was no reason to do it. He just decided. And he fully blamed the movie for it. Which I'm like, Sir. Yeah. He was investigated for six other murders, having thought to be a serial killer at one point, but there was little to no evidence that he was the one that would have killed them. But there's also no evidence that anyone else did either. So. Weird dude. One of the set carpenters cut off his thumb during the rebuild of the set, and a lighting tech lost a toe. What? I, you didn't tell me Pampa worked on this movie. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Losing a toe. My poor grandfather. He lost, a, he lost half his toe when he was running on a beach when he was six, and his dad just stuck it back on and wrapped it up, and he still has Apparently that toe. Apparently it's fine. He can't feel it, but it's there. It's there. And then he broke a toe three weeks ago, and it's the toe right next to the other one, so he's, like, really unbalanced. Another <laughs> the one poor man, dust. <laughs> the poor man's walking in a boot. Hmm. Anyway. The location trip for the beginning of the movie in Iraq was delayed from the spring to the summer where the temperature was 130 degrees or higher. No, thank you. Every day. No. That's, no. Yeah. Mm -mm. Out of the 18 men that went, the director Friedkin lost nine of them, as in couldn't work, not dead, to sunstroke or dysentery at one point or another. No. Which, yes. I would claim it just to get out of it. Like, I'd be like, I'm... I'd be like, sorry, my tummy is... Nope, I must be dysentery. Just drop. You don't, even, you don't even say anything. You just fall over. Just Elizabeth want it. <laughs> <laughs> just death drop. Yep. The shipment of the statue that was used as the Pazuzu artifact was lost in an air shipment and ended up halfway across the world in Hong Kong, causing another two-week delay for the film. And here's a quote from the gauge according to the independent because they also are using sources quoting quoting miller was approached by a real priest in the street while the movie was filming the priest in question supposedly had no knowledge of the exorcist what it was about or that miller was connected to the project it's reported that the priest handed miller a sacred medallion and said quote reveal the devil for the trickster that he is he will seek retribution against you, or he will even try to stop what you are doing, what you are trying to do to unmask him. A little creepy. Little, yeah. A little creepy. Yeah, that's... Uh, I'm not keep, liking that. Keep your stuff to yourself, whether it's, like, you got a Jesus thing, you <laughs> got, like, a... Shannon's like, I don't even want your warnings. Like, don't no, give me nothing. I, just, I don't want to know when I die. Well, I, <laughs> no, I do not. But, like... Whether it's, like, a Jesus thing or, like, oh, your aura. Like, whatever brand of stuff you're into, ah, unless you're asked, don't. Yeah, if if, if my, like, don't like great-great-great-grandmother release... appears to you and tells you something, just don't. I release no, you from responsibility of warning me. Like, I release you of that responsibility. If I come to you. Please tell me the stuff. I live very happily in my bliss and ignorance. Think I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to keep it. That yeah, way. we don't have to know geography. We're fine. We're fine. Ignorance is bliss. We're fine, Dusty. Eventually, Friedkin felt just to be safe, he should ask a Jesuit priest to come and bless the set. <laughs> and from that point on, 
nothing on set happened again. Yeah. But the same day that the blessing happened, a fire happened in a Jesuit residence in Georgetown. Wow. So it's a little parallel to the priest taking on the demon. Yeah, I guess. From this is from Ellen Burstyn, who played the mom. Quote, I don't know if it was a jinx, really, but there was some really strange goings on during the making of the film. We were dealing with some really heavy material, and you don't fool around with that kind of material without manifesting it in some way. There were many deaths on the film. Linda's, the girl who played Reagan, grandfather died. The assistant cameraman's wife had a baby that died. The man who refrigerated the set died. Refrigerated, like, made the set as cold as possible so that you could see their breath during Mm. the filming. He died. The janitor who took care of the building was shot and killed. I think overall there were nine deaths during the course of the film, which is an incredible amount. It was scary. End quote. Even though nothing drastic happened the rest of filming, watching the film perpetuated its cursed legend. It opened to massive, horror-loving crowds on December 26, 1973. Stories started to pop up that audience members were fainting or throwing up in the theaters while watching it, as well as a number of theater ushers that had to be hospitalized or quit after multiple showings of the movie. When the movie premiered in Rome in a theater between two churches, lightning struck a 400-year-old cross at the top of one of the churches, and it plummeted and crashed to the ground. Bro. Right? There were also reports of uh, hallucinations of all kinds that happened right after the movie. Tons of nightmares, tons of hospitalizations because of what people were assuming were like schizophrenic episodes of them hearing voices and things like that. So perpetuated that legend. Kids, Um, don't do drugs before you go to the movies. I mean, it was 1973. That's that's what I'm going to say. All right, if you're going to do that, do it in the safety of your home. Yeah, Bone Shaman, tell me if that's why you were so scared of this movie. Sure. (laughs) Hello? (laughs) So we might not know if it was the movie that was cursed or the fact that it calls out demons that makes it a target for demonic happenings, but all in all, probably not going to watch it. Maybe I'll just watch, like, you know, the clips or whatever to Mm. be like... It's a no from me. (laughs) It's a no from me, dog. Mm -mm. In 2021... The identity of Roland was confirmed to be Ronald Hunkeller, who passed away in May of 2020. He was a NASA engineer (gasps) who worked on the Apollo missions and patented the tech to make space shuttle panels withstand extreme heat. Wow, that's wild that he was possessed by a demon and then went to do a giant hoax against the American people. (laughs) History would have me believe! My gosh. (laughs) A companion who remains anonymous told the press after his death that he always left the house on Halloween because he was worried about what might come to his front door. He retired in 2001 from NASA and seemed to enjoy his retirement. He didn't speak of the exorcism and constantly was afraid that his colleagues might find out that his story was the inspiration for the cursed movie, but it wasn't revealed until after his death. Right before his stroke, a priest unexpectedly arrived at the house, unbidden, to give Ron his last rites, and he died just days later. Oh. Which, 
that in and of itself is like not as creepy to me because at this point it was 2020 and he could have been like yo father so-and-so like texting them be like can you come and do this and he just didn't tell his companion that Mm. this is happening yeah so that is the exorcism of roland doe and the curse of the exorcist (laughs) (laughs) see so like the vibes are spooky but not like i see i see yeah were you as as scared or spooked out as you would have been like with a with another annabelle situation i don't know I can't predict it. I, that's fair. And I, I honestly don't want to tell you about it because I don't want to help you that's make fair. me feel that way. No, but I did make you cry. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Do you believe in boys? <laughs> I can feel something inside of me saying, all right, well, I'm, I'm so proud of that. I don't know how to respond. I don't think I can follow that up. So <laughs> let's journey to the past. To the past. I want you to drop a track, but not that one. You know the one I want. Oh, yeah. I get I got you. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Ruth. Also known as Ruth. Ruth. True. Which now my husband will say in reference to you. I love that. I also love that. That pleases me greatly. It also pre- pleases me when you guys are like seven, seven. for me because I say it to myself when I listen, <laughs> and it just feels like we're like kind of like together yeah. for a moment. Yeah. Well, we are actually together. Yeah. Welcome wow. back to the podcast. Oh yes, I don't. <laughs> Technically, our first ever. Real two-time guest. Steven yes. was technically on two episodes, but we recorded that at all the same together. time. Yes. So yeah, yes. you're a return. You're the first return guest, Returning and you've been veteran in both guest. locations. The yes, and the nook. The nook. Yeah. The pod nook. Welcome. Thanks. Hope you like the seventies paneling. It's yeah, it's nice down little, here. A little youth church uh, action going on. <laughs> um. Our God is an awesome God. Sorry, it's PTSD. Sorry. <laughs> so today, everyone, we're um, mixing it up. We're mixing up the mailbag. I knew you were gonna say something. That's why I paused. I knew you were gonna do some sound. <laughs> um, but Ruth, Ruth is going to read us a story. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was an episode. I don't, what episode was it? Was it the Kelpie episode? Well, there was the Kelpie episode, but then you referenced the Kelpies in an episode where we read a mailbag. Kestrel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a mythical creature. I'm not gonna no, fault no, you for it. Kestrel is a bird. I was so gonna, I was gonna it's make... not a mythical creature. <laughs> it's, it's not, not a mythical creature. It's a hawk. It's a hawk. Kestrel yeah, is what I'm thinking there of from you Harry go. Potter. 
Okay, but I this is a self roast, but it's also an Emma roast. Yeah, well done. Uh, because both of us have just forgotten the episodes that we've we done. We don't like, remember you were, you, any of them. You texted me that you're working on transcripts. Yes. And you were like, oh, it's... Actually, she, she sent something really cute that, like, made me emotional, and I was like, no! Can't deal with it right now. It. So... Sorry. Instead, I just am making fun of her for forgetting that we've done episodes when I do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... There was an episode <laughs> where uh, we read a story from Ruth. It, well, an email. Okay. An yes. email from Ruth that referenced the story that she is going to read us today. Yeah. So well, it included the story, but you guys are going to read it. Well, okay. <laughs> I want to hear it in your voice, okay? I, was, I believe. I will take responsibility. I believe I was reading the email. You were. And I was afraid of pronouncing the... What Icelandic? Nick? No. I, Nick? Listen, I haven't, like, there's gone a, through... There's words in here that I am not going to say all very well. Together. Um, all in this. But in case it's been forgotten, which it probably has, I wrote this for a creative writing class. Yes. And who was your professor? Carrie Brown. Oh, love her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's probably why I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I but, love like, her. the premise of this specific, like, writing workshop was to, like learn how to research for stories and so this specific one was like researching a place yeah so like the place in this story is real from my like i researched it like i haven't been there so like i'm sorry if there's somebody from like norway who lives in this very tiny town and i'm not like like accurately (laughs) depicting it um but i will but so this is all to say that like there are words in here that i did like that did not come from my brain so therefore i don't really i'm probably not going to pronounce them very well strong wrong yeah that's our policy you're on you're you're at the right place let's say that Anyway, okay, we're ready. Yes, ready for <laughs> ready for Ruth story time. Okay, story all right. Time with Ruth. About to story read my own Ruth. writing out loud in front of other people. We could just like not look at yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can if you if you have something to say. Oh, we will. Okay, so here's a little story I wrote in April of 2017, which I have updated a little bit. Um, I've done some editing on it, so. Here we go. I'm gonna read it for everyone. <laughs> I love how much you're, you're practicing this. Just do it. Just jump in. <clears throat> All right. The Nick. His presence was deafening to Norna. It was like a constant buzzing in her ears, an irritating white noise that beat at her skull whenever he was near. Norna's stepfather was never silent. He was always moving in the kitchen, accompanied by the chopping of a knife through vegetables, the roar of the blender, the sizzling of oil in a pan, or the low rumble of a stew boiling on the stove. Even when he was away from the kitchen, the sound seemed to follow him wherever he went. Norna could only look down and pretend the chaos of his presence didn't bother her. She could only wish her birth father was still there to play his violin for her. Her father's violin had always been the eye of Norna's storm. Each note was clear and simple, the rhythms matching her pulse until the music felt like it was a part of her. Her mother had always claimed that Norna's father had sold his soul to a Nick to become such an extraordinary violinist. Norna had been raised on the old folk tale of the shapeshifter who lived in the lake that their village sat on the edge of. Legend said that the Nicker would take the form of a beautiful man, playing the violin to lure women and children into the water, never to be seen again. 
Very rarely would a Nick pass their skills on to a human, but if they did, then the musicians playing could make even the animals stop to listen. She could still hear the echoes of the only time she ever heard her father's fingers falter over the strings. She'd only been ten then and didn't know what a stroke was until one had stopped her father's heart from beating, and Norna would never hear him play again. It had been five years since that moment, and Norna had spent every day with her father's violin under her chin, trying to recreate the clarity of the notes he played, but no matter what she did, there was always a grating to the sounds she played that made her spine prickle, until sometimes it was unbearable for her to continue playing. This night, however, the grating sound wasn't coming from her father's violin. It was coming from the voice of the stranger in her house. What? Meanwhile, I'm sitting here with my eyes closed, like, yes, I am there. <laughs> Shannon's like, ah! I'm sorry. I just... It's, a, know, it's like watching a movie with you. I can't, like, you know, yeah. I don't do well when there's tension yeah. building. I'm like, I gotta make a joke, otherwise we're all gonna die. <laughs> and Ruth is very good at establishing the tension. Yes. Uh, all right, so, uh, there's sorry. a stranger in, in, mm-hmm. the, in the house. It's, yeah. it's, it's not as scary as you think it is. Um, yes, but you're using this tone of voice that makes me Her stepfather worked across the lake in the village of Grodas. (laughs) Although the villages surrounding the lakes were all small, Grodas was the largest. And since Hornendal's Vatnet was the deepest lake in Norway, in all of Europe even, Grodas had become the center for tourism with a nice hotel and docks where tourists could take boats out onto the lake. Norna's stepfather was the chef at the hotel, and, being the talkative man he was, would often invite guests from the hotel over to their house in Hegyabigda for dinner. Tonight, Norna's stepfather was cooking a special meal for an English author who wanted to write a book that took place in Norway. Her stepfather's English was much better than hers, so she didn't speak much while the man was there, but the unusually high-pitched sound of the writer's voice made her stomach uneasy. This, combined with the noise of her stepfather's cooking, left her feeling sick, to the point where it was all she could do to concentrate on finishing her dinner. As soon as her stepfather left to take the Englishman back across the lake to the hotel, Norna escaped to her room, letting the silence and the occasional humming from her mother downstairs soothe her. She didn't remember her stepfather returning home later that night, and she thought she must have fallen asleep, because the next thing she heard could only have come from a dream. It was a sound she thought she would never hear again. It ran through her veins and warmed her skin. The sound of her father playing his violin. (laughs) I'm giving feedback. (laughs) This is how I feel when I read stories that Ruth has sent, except I'm just like screaming at my phone. I'm like, "Ah!" For those of you at home, Shannon and Emma are both sitting there with their eyes closed um, in like a reverie. Emma's head is on Shannon's shoulder and they're I'm just so like, <laughs> I'm getting a bedtime story read to me, but it's like an adult bedtime story and I'm loving it. You're just going to be able to play. We should publish this as just its own episode of like, do you need story time with Ruth? Story, story time, time with, with Ruth. Norna sprang from her bed her feet hitting the wooden floor of her room. She crouched, absolutely still, listening. The music was there without doubt. Her heart racing, she pulled the old leather case from under her bed and opened it. Her father's violin rested fitfully within, 
its familiar polished curves reflecting what little moonlight made it through her window. She could still hear the music as she ran her fingers over the instrument. Reverently, she closed the violin case again and slid it back under her bed. Her ears strained to pick up the even music that still danced through her room. Holding her breath, Norna crossed to her window and pushed it open. The sound of her father's playing blasted her face as well as the cold night temperatures. She ignored the freezing air and leaned further out the window. The notes of a violin echoed across the mountains in an eerie tune. She felt her eyes go out of focus as she tried to catch sight of who was playing. The moon was so bright and full that the small village of Hegevigda was almost as visible to her as it was under the sun. Below her, boxy red houses nestled into the mountainside. They all lined one street that weaved back and forth down the mountain like a ladder and finally ran alongside the lake. At the very edge of the waters stood the Hegevigda church, tall and white, its steeple silhouetted against the clear waters of the lake. Norna could see no one, not even a sign of who might be playing a violin in the cold of the night. There was only a dim shimmering on the waters of Lake Hornendal's Vatnet that You're seemed out so of place. <laughs> so good. That seemed out of place. It wasn't the silver of the moon or the distant gold lights of Grodas. There were two small green lights, like eyes, staring at her. Norna felt her heart skip a beat. Without a second thought, she pushed her window shut again and padded out of her room and downstairs. She slipped on her boots and coat and left the house without a word. It was the middle of the night in April, and snow covered the ground. Normally, Norna would be cold and tired as she made her way down to the lake, but each passing moment made the music of the violin clearer, wakening and warming her. With every step, she grew closer to the source, and with every step, the green eyes watched her from the lake. Finally, she walked along the street running parallel with Hornendel's vatnet. The street was so narrow that there was room enough for only one car to drive it at a time. It had always felt more like a footpath to Norna than a road. She crossed a bridge over a small stream that ran into the lake. Then she was almost to the church. The music had stopped now, but she kept going forward. She felt isolated as she followed the water's edge. Mountains rose up on the other side of the lake, like dark walls topped with white snow, sealing her and the village into the valley. The church also rose up before her, silent and white like the snow. As she drew nearer, she could see the modest cemetery in front of the church, the headstones standing at attention like small soldiers. Amongst the graves, she thought she could see a still figure waiting for her. She did not stop until she stood mere paces from him. He was a young man, only a few years older than Norna. He had dark hair that seemed to float weightlessly around his pale, sharp face. And despite the cold, he only wore a loosely buttoned white shirt tucked into a pair of black pants with thin leather boots on his feet. That's a sexy outfit. <clears throat> I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <clears throat> um, moving right along. Norna observed him keenly before noting, That's disrespectful to the dead. She indicated the way he was leaning against one of the gnarled headstones. The young man smiled. His lips pulled back to reveal unusually sharp teeth and stood up straight. 
The dead are too far gone to care about such things, he said. His voice was silky and rolling like the waves of the lake. Norna felt the hairs on the back of her neck prickle as she heard it, but dared not flinch. What's your name? she asked. The young man took several steps toward her. The shadows from the moonlight flickered on him as he moved, and Norna had to blink to keep him in focus. To give someone your name is to give them power over you, he told her. Norna inhaled. Oh, is all she murmured in response. He was now so close that Norna could reach out and touch him if she wished, but something told her that would be unwise. Norna began to shiver from the cold. Was that you playing? she asked, breaking the silence. On the violin. The young man grinned again as he nodded. He raised his left hand and clutched in his long, delicate fingers was a violin. Norna couldn't remember him holding anything before. Would you like to play? he asked, offering her the instrument. Norna took a step back. I can't, she said quickly. I mean, not like you. Not, not like my father could. The young man's eyes narrowed. Play for me, he pressed. He pushed the violin towards her, along with a bow that Norna couldn't remember him holding either. Finally, she took the instrument. Her hands shook slightly as she brought it up to her chin and rested the bow lightly across the strings. Her fingers were numb from the cold and the strings cut into them as she pressed down on the neck of the violin. Before she could even begin to play, she felt a sudden presence behind her. She glanced up and saw the young man had disappeared and was now standing very close behind her. Her breath caught at the sudden shift, then she felt the young man's fingers on her bow hand. His skin was cool and light, as if he were not truly touching her. "'You're pressing too hard,' he said softly in her ear, and he twitched her bow hand just slightly up. The nerves along Norna's spine tingled even more at the proximity of his voice. It was then she realized how unnatural the young man was. He wasn't like her, or her family. He wasn't human. She knew exactly what he was. Keeping her bow hand up, she ran it across one of the violin strings. Then, by her own playing, out came the most beautiful note she had ever heard. It was as clear and deep as the lake by which she stood. She could not believe her own ears, as a sense of calm she hadn't felt since before she'd lost her father came over her. She stopped playing abruptly, unable to form the question that was boiling in her mind. Keep playing, the young man. The Nick said in her ear again. He hadn't moved from behind her. She did as he commanded without question, and didn't stop playing that beautiful music until her eyelids were so heavy with sleep that she couldn't keep them open. She awoke very tired for school the next morning. However, she didn't mind. Her fingertips were raw as they became whenever she practiced for any long period of time. She knew now that if she took her father's violin from beneath her bed, that she could play it just as beautifully as he once did. But she didn't take it out. She went downstairs and got ready for her day, thankful that her stepfather had already left to serve breakfast at the hotel across the lake. She didn't hear the Knicks playing that night, or the night after that. It was almost a full week before she heard it again. When she finally did, she left for the church by the lake without hesitation, and just as he had before, the Nick was waiting for her. She played for him. She played as he stood by and moved her fingers with his light, breezy touch, each time correcting her so each note 
sounded purer than the last. She heard him play at night regularly after that. She eventually started going to the church by the lake even when she didn't hear him playing, always taking her father's violin with her. Either way, without fail, the Nick was always waiting for her with that same sharp-toothed grin. One day, her mother noticed how tired she always seemed to be. Are you getting any sleep? she asked Norna. Norna hesitated a moment before, answering, I'm trying, but every night I've been hearing the Nick playing. I just can't stop listening. At these words, her mother's eyes grew wide. You can hear him. Norna nodded. Your father heard him too, her mother told her in a hushed tone. You were chosen, like he was. Her mother never questioned Norna after that, only gave a small smile in the mornings when Norna came to breakfast, still rubbing the sleep from her eyes. When the summer came, Norna's stepfather would sometimes take her over to Grodas with him. She could stay at the hotel while he worked or explore the village and coast. She enjoyed the adventure but hated the ride over. Her stepfather would talk. He would talk the whole time and his voice was as grating as her violin playing used to be. It was chaotic and uneven. She wished for the smooth, rolling tone of the Nick who whispered in her ear each night. She would glance at the waters of Hornendel's vatnet. They were so clear she could often see the muddy rocks and branches at the bottom. It was hard to imagine that they all lay hundreds of meters below the surface. She wondered if the Nick was down there too. Your father used to play his violin at the hotel, didn't he? Her stepfather's voice cut in like sandpaper on her skin. Yes, Norna responded, trying not to flinch at the sound. He did. It was a fact she tried not to think about too much. There was something about the idea of her stepfather bringing joy to the guests through his food and the way her father had once done with his playing that made her sick to her stomach. You know, if you wanted, I could arrange with the manager to have you perform there as well. Maybe you can get back into playing again. She didn't tell him that she had never gotten out of playing. She had only started playing at night, where he couldn't hear her. Maybe, she agreed under her breath. You think about it, he assured her then went back to steering the boat across the lake. Her stepfather hadn't brought home a guest for dinner since the English writer. It was nearly July when he brought home another. He's a musician who studied at a music school in Finland, her stepfather told her. The musician guest nodded in agreement to this. He didn't seem to be very old for an accomplished musician. I hear your father used to play violin for the guests at the hotel I'm staying at. He addressed his statement towards Norna. She wasn't quite sure what to say to this stranger about her father, so she simply nodded in agreement. Well, when I was your age, my family came to stay at the same hotel I'm staying at now. Your father played his violin while I was there, and it was during his playing that I realized I wanted to be a musician. I haven't looked back since. The musician frowned at Norna. I came back hoping he might still play at the hotel, but I was very sorry to hear of his passing. Norna shifted in her seat. What happened to her father was not the musician's fault. She didn't know why he felt the need to apologize for it. Norna was unsure of what to make of the musician. His voice was strong and assuring for someone so young, yet she hadn't expected to be talking about her father at the dinner table that night. Finally, she settled on telling the musician, Thank you, and letting him interpret the words how he liked. This answer seemed to satisfy him as he nodded and continued, Your stepfather was telling me, however, that you've taken up playing your father's violin. I'd love to hear you play, if you don't mind. That would be wonderful, Norna's mother agreed before Norna could say anything. Why don't you go get your violin now? 
Norna glanced at her stepfather, as if she needed his confirmation to do such a thing. He nodded, and Norna stood up. She ran upstairs, grabbed her father's violin from under her bed, and returned downstairs with it. Ah, excellent, the musician said as Norna appeared with the case in hand. Go on now, her stepfather urged excitedly. She set the case gingerly on the table and opened it. Her father's violin sat familiar as ever inside. She scooped it up brought it to her chin, and raised the bow to play. As soon as she played the first note, she could tell something was wrong. The sound came out unsteady, without rhythm. It made her skin crawl and her throat tighten. Norna tried to fix her mistakes as the Nick had taught her, but her hands were shaking and everyone's eyes were on her, and it was like playing was beyond her control. By the time she finished her song, she felt unstable on her feet. She returned the violin to its case without a word, and scooped it up. I'm sorry, she said hurriedly, before fleeing outside. Norna, wait, her stepfather called as he stood up, but she didn't stop. It was much warmer than it had been in April, and she continued the journey to the church by the lake at little less than a run. She didn't come to a stop until she saw the solitary figure of the Nick. He was waiting for her, as he always was. Running from your problems? he asked with his now familiar grin. I've forgotten how to play, she confessed quickly. His grin dropped, and he moved closer to her. You've forgotten nothing, he told her. He brought his hand up and touched it to her cheek. His fingers were as cool and light as always. I can't help you with this. You are afraid. He took a step back, his touch moving away from her. The only thing you can do is play until you are not afraid anymore. He looked at her expectantly so she carefully set her father's violin case on the ground and removed the instrument. She could feel the Nick's eyes like two green lights watching her every move. It was as though the musician and her parents' eyes were on her all over again, but at the same time, not like that at all. She let her bow fall across her violin and began to play. She could feel the rhythm of the nearby lake in her playing this time. She heard each note with the same clarity of its waters, with the same depth she had seen from her stepfather's boat. The Nick did not adjust her playing this time. She simply played, and played until her fingers started to ache, and even then she continued playing. She only stopped when she heard a voice behind her exclaimed, You're extraordinary! She froze and turned to find the musician standing several meters away from her. Her mother and stepfather huddled close behind him. They had discovered her. They had learned her secret. She looked back at the Nick, wondering what to do, but he was nowhere to be seen. He had vanished, as if he had never even been there in the first place. I've never heard someone so young with so much talent, the musician continued. He stepped toward Norna, his voice growing serious. If you wanted, and I think you should seriously consider it, when you finish school, you could come to Hel Helsinki in Finland, he told her. The Sibelius Academy of Music is there. That's where I studied, and I think you would be well wanted there. I would give you my recommendation in a minute. If you went, you could learn more about music than you've ever dreamed, Norna. You would play for audiences like your father, and thousands would hear you. Norna was speechless at his words. Learn about music and play for people like her father did. The idea didn't seem plausible, but the musician had just offered all of it to her. She glanced at her stepfather, whose eyes seemed particularly shiny in the darkness. Why don't we go back to the house and discuss things when we're warm inside, he suggested. Good idea, M musician agreed. 
Without further urging, Norna returned her violin to its case and held it in her hands. She glanced about one last time for any sign of the nick, but there were none, so she sprinted to catch up with her family. Her mother pulled her into a hug when she approached and said into her ear, I thought you were the nick when I first heard you playing, heard your playing come from the lake. Norna squeezed back extra hard. The three of them spent the walk back to the house listening to the musician explained all about Sibelius to them, how it had changed his life as an artist for the better, how he didn't know what he would be doing with his life if he hadn't studied there. The whole time Norna listened in rapt interest as her mother and stepfather walked on either side of her. Would you like some tea and a snack? Her stepfather asked her gently when they were finally back inside. Norna nodded, not wanting to interrupt the musician's steady flow of information about the music school. They all sat at the kitchen while the musician carried on, and her stepfather set the kettle. For the first time, Norna could hear a quiet, steady rhythm in the bubbling of the water on the stove. She listened as her stepfather took out a loaf of bread and a block of cheese, cutting slices for everyone to snack on. There was a certain steadfastness and certainty in the careful sounds of his cutting that Norna had never noticed before. By the time he was setting mugs of tea and plates of bread and cheese on the table for the four of them, Norna felt a clarity from his presence that she could only remember feeling once before. The four of them sat around the kitchen table for a long time, their combined speaking voices creating a winding symphony in the otherwise quiet night. It was the first time in a long time that Norna had an ached to hear the Nick playing in the distance, but she realized the mysterious creature was right. She didn't need his help anymore. He had nothing left to teach her. The end. Whoa! <laughs> that was so much more nice than I anticipated. <laughs> I don't trust the stepdad. Uh, I don't no. trust the mythical creature. Every time. Any strangers. But it was so wholesome. Stuff. I loved it. I told you it wasn't as bad as you were thinking. Yeah, but it was so wholesome. I have trust issues. Yeah, she's pointing at me. <laughs> Listeners at home. Yeah. I am pointing at Emma. Yes, that was amazing. Truly, I was like in the zone. I was... Yes. I, I wasn't falling asleep. Okay. I was. I, I do this thing where if, if my eyes are open, mm-hmm. I look as if I'm disinterested mm-hmm. because I'm focusing so hard. So I'm mm-hmm. like, to combat that, I'm just going to close my eyes <laughs> so that I'm not like... So you look very <laughs> invested with your eyes closed. Yes, exactly. Well, I was! <laughs> You're just in a trance. Yeah, I needed to shut off my other like sense... <laughs> That would distract me in order to pay attention. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Rose. That was amazing. You should do an audiobook. Truly. I you have perfect diction. <laughs> Even with, like, you know, the <laughs> words you can't necessarily pronounce. <laughs> I, I mean, I was very impressed. Once you got, like, once you got one yeah. down, you I were like, like, I'm just going to I'm just going to chug right I'm through so this. I'm so sorry if it's the wrong one. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. It worked out great, uh, We though. haven't gotten any pronunciation corrections but this will be the episode we are really strong lester Mason. norway yeah they're gonna come from me and be like all right like, let's sit down author of yours. That's just, no. oh my gosh thank you so much that was amazing Thanks. what a good heart Bart. truly dang you right and remember this podcast doesn't exist, doesn't exist. okay thanks bye good night. <laughs>